All right, we'll turn over there. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 40. Nature and demons are subject to Jesus. And then in our next study, we're going to see that so is disease and death. And so Jesus is just showing the greatness and the power um, that he has. Um, We're going to hear the disciples say, who is this? And all the things that are going on through the ministry of Jesus are to point them to the conclusion that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Um, He is God in flesh. He is Emmanuel. And they are going to become fully convinced of that as they watch Jesus minister. But it's good for us to be reminded that this same Jesus whom we worship and we follow and who dwells within us is, is a Messiah and that he is God omnipotent and he is able to show up in our circumstances. And that is a truth that each and every one of us has to make our own. Now, we don't do that apart from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit or even the encouragement of those around us. But until we understand the omnipotence of God and the love of God in our life, we will be so tossed about on the storms that life sends our way. We pick up the story. Let's read verses 22 through 25 to begin with there in chapter 8. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake and they launched out. But as they, as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. And so we have this scene. We read here, this account is found in Mark. It is also found in Matthew. And when you piece these together, you get a fuller picture. Um, You'll read certain statements that maybe differ from one account to another. And you think, how in the world could they be saying different things? Um, Because in one account, I think it's in Mark's account, the statement is something like, we're perishing, don't you care? (laughs) So that's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? So, But here we just read a respectful tone. Master, master. So how is it that we can have accounts in Scripture uh, that are inspired and inerrant, and yet they don't line up? How many people are in the boat? There are 12 people on the boat. Do you think I, they all said the exact same thing? When you guys sit down for a meal at your house, does every one of your kids say the exact same thing at that meal? Mom, that was an awesome meal. You did a great, fantastic job. And then is it possible that one of the other ones could say, I can't stand this dinner when you make it? Is there, is there, I mean, if, if they go away and there was an account given of the dinner, you would hear that this was the worst meal ever and that this was the best meal ever. Can, is it possible to have a difference of perspective and a different statement coming out of it, the exact same scene when you have a dozen people that are very, very different from each other? You have tax collector 
and you have fishermen, and you have guys that want to overthrow Rome, right? I mean, you have a wide range of people. You have those that are in the, you know, into finances, like Judas. I mean, they, there was a difference of opinion. I'm, I, I can't say for certainty that that is what took place as we piece these together and find different comments and different aspects of that same event being related, but that is a reasonable explanation. So if that's not it, there is another reasonable explanation we can look to. We also find out from these other accounts that this was at the end of a long day of ministry. And so Jesus is tired. He's trying to get away from the crowd. He's trying to go and, and refresh. And, and that's why we see him falling asleep and just going out. In the midst of a storm, he's, just, he's so tired and um, is able to... Um, you know, everybody else is fearing for their life. I think there's a lesson that's tied into this as well. But, you know, you can fall asleep. And if you're, real, you're tired enough, sometimes you can sleep through some pretty amazing things. Uh, my, you talk to my dad, and he'll love to tell you the story about a time when I was in high school. And can, can high school boys sleep hard? Yes, they can. And where a Doberman, a full-grown Doberman, was standing on my chest. It was ours. Standing on my chest, barking out the window, and I was asleep. <laughs> so, it, you can fall asleep and go out. And Jesus has had a long day of ministry. He's saying, let's go over to the other side. And they begin to make their way um, uh, across the sea. But the Sea of Galilee, um, historically, has been known for being able to have storms that will come up rather quickly. And it's because of the uh, where... It lies in, you know, in, on the planet, 680 feet, approximately 680 feet below sea level. There's steep cliffs that go up from the Sea of Galilee on either side. If you go up to the north, you can keep on going up to Mount Hermon where they actually can have snow. And it comes down from Mount Hermon and that cold air can rush down quickly and it can hit the warm air of the Sea of Galilee and that... Um, in that region, and it clashes, and it creates these storms, and that apparently is what was taking place. So we got a map, um, I think, right? Okay, so th th that, I know it's hard to read a part of it, but this, it starts at Capernaum, and um, it kind of comes down and goes over, um, this is the, the area that we believe that they are headed to. So um, it's in that route that that part of the Sea of Galilee where we believe that storm hit them. And so um, one author, William Barclay, estimates it's about a five-mile journey that they were on when that came upon them and caused them to be panicking and to be worried. They were fearing for their lives, right? They were so gripped with fear that they began to accuse, again, taking the account we have from, from Mark, they began to accuse the wonderful, the counselor, um, Mighty God, the Word of God in flesh. I mean, this, they are challenging Him for not caring. We are perishing, and you don't seem to care very much. You've never made that kind of accusation against the Lord, have you? You've never informed the Lord about things in your life with the attitude kind of in the background that, you, you're, you're not handling this correctly. You're not doing this right. 
And for them, this is exactly what they're doing. You know, they're on a physical storm. You may have some other storm going on in your life with your business or with a relationship or with your health. Lord, don't you see what's going on? Lord, do you know what's happening in my life? And those, those things can be accusatory, and it would seem that that is exactly the case. But we must remember that in verse 22, Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's go out into the middle of this lake and drown. Let's go out into the middle of this lake and be overcome by a storm. That's not what he said. He said, let's go to the, uh, to the other side. I think it is so important that we learn to embrace the words of Jesus when he calls us to a task, when he calls us to, to this walk of faith, when he calls us to go and do something and go somewhere or put our hands to do um, a task. He's not saying so that you can fail, right? He's not calling you out to failure. He's calling you out to complete the task. But in the midst of those tasks, we can be certain that there are going to be storms that are going to beat us back and they're going to challenge us. And they're going to begin to maybe even cause us to wonder at the faithfulness of the Lord. Or did I hear the Lord correctly? When we follow the words of the Lord and his instruction, we shouldn't be surprised at the storms of life. We shouldn't be surprised that things come up. It would seem out of nowhere, and that's this, what this storm was. As we say, it came out of nowhere. This storm came out of nowhere. They had no indication that it was about to happen. Now, we can look at people like Jonah, who, because of their disobedience, they get on a boat and the storm arises. Right? They, I mean, we understand why that storm came up. The Lord had a call on his life. He wanted him to go um, to the east and go witness in Nineveh, and he gets on the boat, and he heads what? West. I mean, he's going in the opposite direction. And the Lord's like, that's not what I said to do. I think I'm going to turn you around. And you, you know the account. And so they ended up throwing him overboard. And as soon as he hit the water, a great fish swallowed him and started heading east and threw him up on a shore. And um, he made the rest of his journey over there. So you, you can have storms of life because of disobedience, that's for sure. I think all of us would know of that chastening or that correcting influence of God in our life. And you know it immediately. The Spirit of the Lord just like, yeah, that was not a right thing to do. And I know I'm being corrected now. But there are times where you're doing exactly what the Lord would have you to do. And storms arise. But we have to know what the last thing was the Lord told us to do. Did he say, go to the other side? And if he did, you have to have faith in that. And this is where Jesus kind of drills down with them and, and, and questions them about their lack of faith. So some may say, well, wait a minute here. So if I'm obedient, I can have a storm come up in my life. And if I'm disobedient, I can have a storm come up in my life. That's correct. So what's the value of being obedient? Here's the value. Who's with you in the storm? The Lord is with you in the storm. Life is going to bring challenges. Life is going to bring difficulty. And sometimes the Lord is going to even allow certain trials to be developed around our life that we might grow in our faith 
But the blessing of the presence of Jesus is priceless. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were told that they needed to bow down and that they needed to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And this image that was made of gold that was of him. You must bow down and you must worship this thing. They're like, no, we don't do that. Well, if you don't do that, you're going to be killed. Yeah, we still don't do that. We're going to take him in front of Nebuchadnezzar. You do that or I'm going to throw this into the fire. No, we don't do that. I'll make it seven times hotter. So what does that actually do? I don't, you know, I mean, if you're throwing me in fire, I'm going to die. You make it seven times hotter. I die quicker. I don't know. What, what is that threat supposed to do? But they were not moved by those threats, were they? They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Uh, you know, whether our God delivers us or not, he is capable. We're not bowing down to you. We're not going to bow. It doesn't matter what you throw at us, seven times, 70 times, whatever number you want. So they threw him in. Those that threw them in were killed by the heat of the, the flames coming out. And as they threw him in, they saw them walking around in the midst of this furnace. But how many were seen walking around? Four. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's three names, okay? Three individuals were thrown in, but there was a fourth, and that one looked like the Son of God. The Lord ended up being in the midst of the fire with them. So the, the answer to the question is, yes, that's true. Walking in obedience doesn't mean you avoid the trials and the hardships of life. Sometimes the, the, there may even be something that will come on, and it'll be an attack in, uh, upon you for following and obeying the Lord. And disobeying the Lord is a corrective hand of God, but what would you rather have? Would you rather have the Lord and the attack coming against your life, or would you rather have the storm and the corrective hand against, of God against you? And so for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're walking around in the fiery furnace. The only thing that burns are the, the, you know, the cords that they were tied up with. They burn off. They're walking around. They're having fellowship with this fourth person that, you know, appearance of God in the midst of the fire with them. And Nebuchadnezzar has to call them to come on out. Hey, you guys, come on out of here, out of there. I want to talk to you. And they come out and out. And they, you know, they, they talk to him. And he realizes that their God is able. So, the presence of Jesus in the midst of the storm, that's the difference. That's the difference. Here's the question, though. Does that mean anything to you? I mean, I'm not, I, mean I know the Sunday school answer is, well, you know, of course it means something. But I mean, in reality, does the presence of the Lord in the midst of your storm make a difference? I mean, as, as you think about it right now, it's like, well, if the Lord's going to be there, then I want. It's kind of like Paul when he says, "Listen, I, I've learned that you know, in in hardship and difficulty and having the thorn in my flesh, that when I am weak, that I'm strong. And I've learned that God's grace is sufficient. And I would rather have the thorn, and the grace than to be thornless without that power. And so, where do we value Jesus in our life? Well, these guys were very glad to have Jesus to call upon." And Jesus was just resting in the storm. He was asleep. Um, uh, one author says, It's comforting to know that an outcry of human distress awakens the one whom a most violent storm cannot awaken. The storm 
and the wind and, and all the, the commotion, that doesn't wake Jesus up. That doesn't move him. What moves him? It's when his followers say, we're perishing. That awakens the Lord. That brings him into focus. And that is true for you tonight. That if you would call upon the Lord, the Lord would hear and he would answer. Jesus is an example of how we should be handling the storms as we go about the Lord's business. And that is to be at peace, to be at quiet, not to be stressed out. So Jesus responds to them and he says, where is your faith? Where's your faith? What, are you, what, what concerns you so that you, you're, you're freaking out like this? Where, are you trusting in your abilities, fisher guys? Are you, are you trusting in, I don't know, you should be trusting in me. And so storms and trials are, are something that reveal where we are with the Lord. Sometimes we'll say this, and it won't be accurate. We'll say in the midst of a trial or in the midst of a storm or temptations, oh, you know, I've backslid. Mm, maybe you just found out exactly where you were. Maybe I just found out exactly where I was. It isn't that I necessarily backslid. It's just that now I get to see when the fire's on, this is, what I, this is who I really am. And, and this is what these guys, they have a test that comes that reveals their faith. Where is your faith? Trials are meant to build faith. And God never wants faith-building opportunities to be occasion for anxiety to overwhelm us. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. And will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. That's the man of God. That is the woman of God. Those that trust in the Lord, they're not freaked out when drought comes and when the, the, the wind comes and it dries everything up and there's overwhelming heat. It's okay. It's all right when... When, when this goes on, because I've got a resource into the Lord that allows me to survive, that allows me to make it through. And this is what the Lord would have us to respond to in our trials. Their fear revealed the lack of faith in the ability of Jesus or the willingness of Jesus to get them to the other side. <laughs> fear is something that is it's such a, a natural human reaction to bad circumstances or even to the thought of bad circumstances. I think probably in this year, 2020, more people have suffered from debilitating fear than probably in any year. Because like, well, what's going to happen? And we don't know. And we're told all kinds of bad things are going to happen. And they could happen. Bad things happen on planet Earth. It, it can happen. But where are we trusting? Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Who holds your next breath? Who knows the number of your days? It's not the CDC. It's Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean we should be careless and cavalier. I'm just saying 
Trust in the Lord. And don't allow these present circumstances to overwhelm you and to begin to cause you to uh, make to live life differently because of fear. You've heard me say this for years. We are to make our decisions from the place of faith, not from the place of fear. So as you follow the Lord and you make your decisions, do it from a place of faith. Not in fear, because fear will just have you ping-ponging all over the place. The Lord will have us to trust. When Jesus quieted the winds and the waves, and normally the winds will stop and it takes some time for the waves to catch up, right? But when Jesus quieted the winds, the waves were quieted right then too. It happened simultaneously. It was violent storm and then it was dead quiet. And this is what causes them to say, wow, who is this that is able to do that? You can have confidence in the Lord. He cares for you. He sees you. He knows you. You know, we may not always have an explanation of why and why not in life's trials and hardships, but we have the sure foundation, and I hope you have the experience, too, of who your God is. Why is a tough question? Sometimes it gets answered. I'm going to say most of the time it doesn't get answered. Why, Lord? I love you. Why, Lord, you can trust me. Why, Lord, fear not. All of these bring us back to, you know, sometimes there is an answer. There is always an answer in the midst of the storm of the person and the character and the nature of God. There is not always an answer in the storm for the why these things have happened. I'm not saying it's a sinful question, okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying little dose of reality. You can ask. And you may get an answer, but you will always get an answer for who is with you in the storm. And what's more valuable to you? What's more valuable to me? Is it more valuable to know who's in the storm with me or to know why the storm has come? Knowing why doesn't change anything, does it? But knowing who certainly can change me in the storm. And so this is the important truth. Again, questioning the Lord. Psalm 56.8 says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. That's Psalm 56.8. And it's from the New Living Translation. You keep track of all my sorrows. How many sorrows have you had in your life? Oh, you forgot that number, huh? Yeah, me too. How many tears have you shed? Okay, yeah, that's kind of a hard Just the last time you cried, how many fell from your eyes? And where are they? And do you have a book that records all of this? You don't care more about yourself than the Lord cares about you. You know, um, you know, babies, we have a new grandbaby. And I was talking to you know, my daughter, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, he's, he's, got, he's added this many ounces and, you know, all these little things going on that are big markers, you know, in a little life. And um, we're talking about all of them, and, you know, he's got, you know, hair there and this, that, but this hair will probably come off. And I'm like, yeah, this is the Lord looking over us. He knows our rising up and our sitting down, our going out and our coming in. 
we don't even, we don't keep track of that. But a mom will, and dad will keep track of a newborn, like everything. How many ounces of milk was that? How many diapers today? I mean, there's a, there's a level of detail that parents have around a child that the child never will have. And so moms and dads can, and grandparents can say, I remember. And they can start going through all of these details. Well, the Lord has this kind of care for you. You do not care more about your life than the Lord cares about your life. You do not care more about your friend or your relative that is going through a trial than the Lord cares. And I think we would do well to just back down when we begin to rise up like we think we care more than the Lord does. And this is a a, a great tactic of the enemy and many would say that they today will not follow God because of something they deem in his character that's, that's uh, uh, tr- problematic. It it's it's, it's lacks character or lacks love or lacks integrity, they will say, of the Lord. Therefore, that's why they don't follow. They just, and they will go on. And they, the idea that you care more than the Lord is ignorance. Arrogance, maybe both, I don't know. But the truth is this. The Lord cares more than all of us put together will ever care. So the next time we feel like saying, Lord, don't you care, let's remember who's got the bottle in heaven with all of our tears and the book with everything that's gone on, who knows every one of the sorrows you've ever had. And, and if you care more about yourself or you care more about your your, your daughter, your son, your husband, your wife, how many sorrows have they had? And do you have a book and have you collected their tears? Now, real, uh, I mean, okay, I, I don't know that we have a real, you know, filing cabinets full of tears up in heaven. Some metaphor, it's poetic, but you get the point. The Lord is caring. One other thing um, before we move on from here, just to, about the place of trials and storms in life. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, kind of a summary of why the children of Israel went through the wilderness as they're about to head into the promised land. It says, yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people need more than bread for their life, real life comes by feeding on every word of the Lord. Again, that's a New Living Translation. It's more than just the necessities of life. It's more than just eating and drinking and getting clothes and going through the, those things. It's, it's real life. is a spiritual life. We esteem the physical. God esteems the spiritual. To us, the pinnacle is more physical stuff. And yet, who is the greatest of, of them all? Who is the greatest being that exists? It's the Lord. And how much material is there in the hymn? Oh, God is what? God is spirit. We esteem the physical, but God esteems the spiritual. We esteem the bread that comes from the cabinet, and the Lord esteems the bread that comes from heaven. We esteem what we can measure and what we can look like. The Lord says, but just trust me for tomorrow's bread. That's the word of the Lord he's saying you need to live on. 
The word of the Lord was, I'll give you bread tomorrow. There was no bread in the cabinet. So he took them out into the wilderness to teach them, don't look to physical things. What you need to look to is my word. And what my word says to you, that's the important aspect of your life. That's the real thing in your life. And so we have to constantly beat off those physical attachments and values in this life to remain spiritual. You know, sometimes we can get really upset at the people who want to come by and encourage us in the spiritual when we're in the midst of a physical. And is that really a right response or a healthy response? Because the Lord says, what's important is my word. So follow Jesus carefully, follow him closely, and know that there's going to be things that happen, even when you are fully obedient. But keep on believing. Don't stop, start you know, doubting, and keep on doing what he's called you to do until you have a clear directive that takes you to the next thing. Let me say that again. Keep on doing what God has called you to do until you have a clear directive that would take you away from what God has called you to do. Go to the other side. Clear directive. That's not hard to understand. But the storm's going on. They go to the other side. And and so whatever it is that God has called you to, whatever he's told you to put your hand on, you don't stop until he says, now put your hand on this plow. Come over to this field. Come over and begin to do this. Wait till you have the clear directive. I, I, I'll just, and I, I, you know, listen, this is a debatable statement. But I think the prayer request that says, Lord, do you want me to keep on doing what I've been doing is the wrong prayer to, to pray. Because I don't know about you, but I have said, Lord, do you want me to keep on doing it? And so often I hear nothing. <laughs> it's just Silence. I don't hear the Lord saying, yes, keep on doing it. But I do hear the Lord ask me this question often. What's the last thing I told you to do? That's what I want you to keep on doing. And so we, we, we kind of come into this question of finding out the will of God when we know that I'm supposed to be in this boat and getting to the other side. And so I keep on asking him, should I be in the boat and go into the other side? And he's asleep. He's not answering. Because he's already told you what to do. And keep on doing it until he gives you a clear directive to change from the course that you're on. If you will challenge that thought, okay. But I'm telling you from my personal walk and experience, that has been one of the most liberating truths and principles to walk by. I know what General Jesus told me to do last. Those are my marching orders. And just because I'm tired, or just because the storm's going on, or just because I'm tired of the scenery, or just because it's like been for a long time, is no reason to stop doing what he's told me to do. I like change. Well, like obedience more. And keep on following him. So, Jesus has power over nature. He has power over the elements. As we move into verses 26 through 40, we're going to see that he has power over demons. Power over demons. We read here, and let's just pick up at verse 26, and we'll read, we'll read for a little while here. 
So then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, I don't know how all of this works, but it is interesting. The disciples are saying, who is this guy? And the answer comes from a very unsuspecting source. Because what the demon says is true. (laughs) What he says is exactly right. You are the son of the most high God. That's how come he can tell wind and waves to be still. The demons believe and tremble, but they are not saved. So they know who he is. And this demon-possessed man comes and falls down, and you hear the dread of these demons coming through this man and saying, don't torment us. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. And we'll stop right there for now. We begin at verse 26, and what we we read is, they sail to the country of the Gadarenes. Can you go ahead and, I think we got the map. Can we go ahead and put it up? And I realize this is not the greatest of the maps. Yeah. I hope you can see it. So at the very top by the lake, um, there is uh, there's a, a place um, that people believe this took place. If you go down a little further south, you'll see another black dot right there. And this, this is another place that some would say. And if you keep on going, there's another area that very few would say, some 30 miles away, um, is where this event took place. So one of them is on the shore, one of them is six miles away, and one of them is 30 miles away. And, and so when we read the, about the Gadarenes, um, there tends to be a little bit of confusion here. Matthew refers to the uh, location as Gergesinus, um, whereas Luke and Mark refer to the same location. It really doesn't seem to be reasonable at all based upon the geographical description we've just had of the storm and immediately getting off, somebody meets them on the shore, that it could be either the second or third option. And so um, you have people that, you know, are, you know, trying to figure this out. It seems, many believe this is maybe the... um, a recent discovery there on the shore of Galilee that's called uh, Kersey, and that this would be the place. Here's what's certain. We have not a clear understanding of exactly where this location was, and it may be one of two things for having different names for the location is that just like today, we can have similar names or maybe even multiple names for our same location. And so you may have what you know, people will know as uh, I'll give you an example, um, living in Southern California, um, and people say when I lived, when we lived over in, in um, Australia, we are from uh, Southern California. We are from Orange County. We lived in in Fountain Valley, 
And people would often introduce and say, oh, they're from Los Angeles. Nobody from Fountain Valley wants to be told that they are from Los Angeles. And so, I mean, but I, yes, I am from that area. There's just, there's a little bit of distance. And so this is an example of how we can make reference to locations that it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just there are multiple names or different ways to describe an area or even a town. And it would seem to me that we're probably just missing some information from archaeology and from history and from writing about these names. So I'm not worried about it at all. To me, it's not even a question of where this took place. It happened on the shores. And we're going to read this again because when the demons go out, they go out into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? They run down and they drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. A 30 or 40 mile run would be a very long run for a little piggy. He might be able to go to market, but I don't know that he can go 30 or 40 miles. You know what I mean? So it, it, there's no dispute really um, from the geographical uh, description we have. This is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you want to talk more about that, talk to me afterwards. I studied far more on this than I probably should have today, but that's the summary of it. In verses 26 and 27, the demoniac was in a desperate state. And Jesus was moved to seek him out and to touch him, even in the face of a desperate storm. Sure, it was a storm that came out of nowhere, but it was not a storm that Jesus would have been unaware of. The disciples were unaware of it, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he needed to go over there and he needed to touch this man. What a can you imagine this? I mean, you can think of this as, oh, that would be a scary man. But think about this as your baby boy that's all grown up and is held by the power of Satan like this. And the Lord has compassion. The Lord has said, I haven't come for those who got it all together. I haven't come for those who have their lives all squared away. I've come for the sick. I've come to set at liberty those that are held captive when Jesus was in Nazareth quoting from Isaiah the prophet about setting free those that are held captive, I wonder if he was anticipating this man. And so he says, let's go to the other side. You know, there is a question as to where did this storm come? Was it just a natural storm that came out of nowhere um, just because of the geographical location it's possible? Some would suggest that this was a storm that was maybe demonically inspired. And um, when Jesus, uh, we read here, then he arose and rebuked the wind. It's the same kind of word that's going to be used to rebuke uh, the demon. And so some say this was a, a demonically inspired storm. And, and we do know that God allows Satan to use storms to bring harm. And the book of Job, and where all of his sons died, is an example of that. I think it would be incorrect to say that every time the weather doesn't go the way you want to, <laughs> that it's the result of some demon, okay? Uh, you might be praying for sunshine, but somebody might be praying for rain. So, you know, I mean, that, let's not get extreme about this. But in this circumstance, knowing that this is the Son of God and knowing that he's going over, headed in that direction, the demonic forces... Wanting to stop him does not seem like a stretch to me. But Jesus is on his way to set a man free, to set a captive free. I think all of us, a point that we can take away from this is say, Lord, send me out 
to the other side. Lord, would you send me out, you know, in 2021, would you send me out to somebody who's desperate and needs to be liberated by the power of the gospel? Lord, would you do that? I, I mean, let me just kind of pause for a second here. Talking about this as a staff. We've all talked about these things um, one way or another. But we were talking about just all that's happened in 2020. And um, I don't think I'm overstating it to say it's hard to recall. I don't know of any time in, in, in recent history where the church universal everywhere, church in Nepal, up in the mountains of Nepal, up in the you know, Himalayan mountains, over in Israel, over in Africa, down in Costa Rica, all over the world, you know, here in Lynchburg, out in California, up in New York, down in Alabama, that the church has, at a single moment, has been collectively as affected as much as she has been right now. I don't think that's an overstatement. And, you know, I don't feel like we've seen the Lord's response to it yet. Now listen, if it was just Calvary Chapel Lynchburg and we had some challenges and we had this going on, I'd say, well, you know, things happen. But it's the entire church of Jesus Christ. It's the entire church that he's redeemed that said the gates of hell will not prevail against. And so, yeah, all that has happened may have, maybe was not some grand scheme by people to try and thwart the church, but I believe that Satan is seizing upon it and it is affecting the church's ability to get together and to fellowship. And people are hurting. I, I mean, I, I can't stand up here and tell you everything that I hear, but I, let me just tell you, if you think it's no big deal that the church is not getting together, you've not had enough conversations with your brothers and sisters. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. It's not about bread alone. It's about every word of God and coming and being nourished and spiritual gifts flowing through my life and through your life into each other's lives. Edifying the body of Christ. And, and, and you know, the institutional evangelism in the United States, and I would say probably worldwide as well, has never been more limited than it is at this very hour. We are not in the jails. We are not in the nursing homes. And we are not in the schools. And that is pretty much across the board. And so evangelism that takes place in these institutions has been drastically reduced. Mission activity, so many missionaries have come home unable to go back, and very few Think of missionaries that have launched out in 2020, past the first quarter, to go share the gospel. The church has been pushed back and pressed back. I tell you what, I know the Lord's going to come out. I mean, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is going to come out, and he is going to, as he has historically done for 2,000 years, give church his power to go and do what the church has always been called to do. And that is to love each other and to glorify the Lord and to evangelize the world. That's going to happen. It's going to happen. Because the Lord is not finished with the church. It hasn't happened yet, though. I'm not saying that it hasn't continued to go on in some level. But I don't feel like we've seen the response to the way in which the church has been so limited. And I can't wait to see it. 
And I want to be full of faith. And when Jesus says, go to the other side, I want to be in the boat and I want to be going. As a matter of fact, honestly how I feel is I want to already be in the boat when he says, get in the boat. And I already want the sails to be down and I want to catch the wind and go where the Lord sends us. Because there are hurting people. There are desperate people. There are sons and daughters whose lives are just being destroyed. And so maybe it is the Lord just pruning and shaping and gearing us up. And if that doesn't excite you, I'm sorry. I don't know what would excite you. It's to think about the Lord thrusting the church out with power that hasn't been seen in a generation. It needs to happen. Now, maybe it happens here. Maybe it happens only over in the east or somewhere else. But I am praying that wherever it is, that we are ready for it. And they're not sitting with their hands folded and lying back and waiting for things to get. No. The harvest is plentiful. Get ready. Ready yourself. Because there are people. So are you willing to hear the Lord say, get in the boat and let's go to the other side, even if it's difficult? That's a good question to talk about as a family, I think. Well, these demons, they plead for their short-lived freedom. They say, please don't you know, uh, send us into a place of torment. They know what's coming. The demons are free. Uh, you know, a, a certain class of demons is free to move about and to possess and to harass and to thwart and to um, do what they do. But not all of them. There are some that are chained that we read are going to be released in the tribulation. What a scary read that is for those that are going to be here. But Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. This is a future, this is a looking, this event has not happened yet, so we read it as future. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where they're headed. They're going to be tormented forever. It's not interesting. They know this. They know that they're going to be tormented in the lake of fire. And yet, they continue on. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They know that there's a place of torment prepared for them. But they are fighting with all that they have. But you know, the great thing is for man, he has the opportunity to repent because this was not made for man. Man has a chance to repent, and now is that opportunity. Well, they asked to, um, to go into this herd of swine, so they begged that they would not be commanded to go to the abyss. Verse 32, now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. So, I mean, clearly this is the, the, the location for this is taking place is right there on the um, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so this is it. <laughs> um, seems to be over, but it's not over. Verse 34 when those who fed them saw what had happened, read this, the employees, when they saw what happened, 
right? How do you explain to your boss what happened? And they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then they went out to see what had happened. I would assume the owners here. And came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed, meaning the demons went into the swine. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. So you might think, well, what are the Jews doing having, you know, herds of, of pigs? They're Jews. They shouldn't be doing this. Well, this region is the Decapolis. It's predominantly a Jewish area, and it's probably the area that he did the feeding of the 4,000 was on this side in the Decapolis as well. So this was a Gentile area, so that would explain why they, there were so many um, pigs that were, were there. But these, these people are, they're, they're sad. They see the profits of their pig sales going down the drain, and they cannot appreciate this demoniac who's profiting from salvation. It's interesting that this same mentality so often exists. And people who get saved and get off drugs and they, they get their life straight and they start walking uh, you know, uprightly and they begin to be productive in life and family and for the kingdom of God. People will often come and say, I liked you better when you were a drug addict. I liked you better when you were sleeping around with whoever would come. I liked you better when you were foul-mouthed and you were a liar and you were stealing. And I liked you better then because oftentimes... People who have not come to Christ do not appreciate that salvation. I'm not saying it's all the time. Because sometimes we're like, well, I don't believe what you believe, but it's worked for you. But sometimes there are those people that just, they cannot celebrate and rejoice over the change that has happened and come into somebody's life. So they ask him to depart. What a terrible thing to do is to say to Jesus Christ, can you please leave this salvation thing, this healing of people, this, this display of power, this calming of seas, we're not interested in that. We're interested in doing life our way, and you've just made that really difficult. But the question is, did he make it difficult? Are we to blame Jesus for the dead pigs? You know, they don't want to be tormented and they don't want to have to confront him. It, to me, it just seems like, and I'm not saying at all like Jesus was outsmarted, okay? But he permits the demons to go into the swine. And the swine, or, and these demons, they've got a plan. Let's get rid of Jesus. And so, how to do that? Well, let's ruin the profit of this, this herd. And these people will get upset. And, I, and that's some conjecture on my part. But it certainly seems like it. I don't think we, we need to read this, that Jesus killed a, you know, a couple of thousand pigs. Uh, that, that's not in the text. It's the demons who did it. And the demons had a plan. And it seems to have worked quite well because they said, just leave. Just leave. And so Jesus gets in the boat and he departs. Verse 38 now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house 
and tell what great things God has done for you. And went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So it was, look at this, underline this verse. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Do you think the guy went and did his job? Oh, he went and did his job. So the demons maybe had a plan, but Jesus had a plan for their plan. And his plan was better. And that was to allow somebody that experienced the living power and touch of Jesus Christ to go and proclaim that to people. And so that when he came back through, they were ready. They were waiting. They welcomed him into the presence. But I do find it kind of interesting. I'm not going to go much into this, but just, just a thought for you to think about. The demons ask for something and they get it. These, you know, godless um, people from the Decapolis ask for something and they get it. A man who's just been changed and wants to follow Jesus asks for something and what? He doesn't get it. The Lord has another plan for his life. And he walks it out. Just something to ponder in prayer, right? Just because the Lord says no doesn't mean that it's, it's no. Just because the Lord doesn't give you what you want doesn't mean that you're not going to get something that's beautiful and wonderful. And for this man to see his entire family and friends, his, his dad's friends, and I, to see them all come to faith because of the work Jesus had done. So Jesus is looking for people to go and, and to give testimonies of what the power of God has done in their life. Jesus doesn't want lawyers that will go out and argue the case. He wants people that will go and tell their story. And so we need to be constantly interacting and having a new, fresh encounter with the Lord that we might be able to communicate this. I'm just going to wrap this up and I'm going to dive into a deep to uh, topic. I'm going to be short with it. And um, you can feel free to ask questions afterwards. But we read about this demon possession. And um, a topic that often comes up with this is can Christians be demon possessed? Now, usually that word is not used, demon possessed. Usually it's a transliteration of the Greek word and we call it being demonized. Okay, so that's a translation of the transliteration of the Greek word. And, and so they say, no, a believer cannot be demon-possessed, but they can be demonized. Well, what does it mean to be demonized? And here's a, here's a, a way to understand it. The indwelling and enslavement, enslavement begins when a believer chooses to sin over a period of time until demons are able to enter the believer's body and control at least a part of the person's body and mind. It goes on, I'm reading from an article. It says, The demonized believer has no ability to restore his walk with the Lord, but must rely on a, um, a practitioner to come. And I'll say minister. I think he's taking a little shot there. On a minister to come. That through whatever means and methods he finds that give the desired results, rebuke and cast out the demon from the believer. These methods usually involve several exercises such as binding Satan, casting out Satan and the particular indwelling demons, rebuking him, pleading the blood of Jesus, and so on. The question is, can that happen to a believer? Can a believer be demonized? It's, 
the same as demon possession. It's just, I think it's just, it's, it's playing with words. And the answer is no. That can't happen. And uh, listen, listen, I know a lot of you got some stories to tell. A lot of you have an experience. Yeah, but I saw this happen, or I knew, or this took place. Here's a, here's a principle and a truth that you must cling to. What does the Bible say about the topic that we're discussing? Not what was your experience. Because the reality is, people have experiences for everything. For everything. I'm not saying unbelievers. I'm not saying believers that want to manipulate something. People have experiences. But as one person writes, the phenomenon does not determine belief. What determines belief? It's the word of God. Is that narrow? Yes, it is. And I am willing to walk a narrow line that says I don't understand that and how it happened, but I don't have to give an explanation for, for that experience. You have to find the place to give an explanation for that experience from the Word of God. I don't have to do that. My job is to come to the Word of God and say this is what the Word of God says. So let's ask this question. What, what is the last time you read a Bible verse about a believer being demonized, demon-possessed, and that demon needing to be cast out of a believer? When is the last time you read that verse? You haven't read that verse because it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. It is not in the book of Acts and it is not in the epistles. The only thing we ever read is people that are bound and held by Satan, possessed, that are set free and the demons are, are, are told to go and then the person comes and has salvation. So are there experiences? Yes. And so the, the, the logic and the teaching goes something like this. Well, I... You know, the reason why you can't have victory over this sin issue in your life is because you have the, the, a demon of lust in your life. And until that demon of lust is, that is holding you and gripping you, and you can't do it on your own, until that demon of lust is cast out, you will never have victory over your sexual immorality. And you can take that same line of thinking and you can put it into the demon of alcohol. Or you can put it into the demon of bitterness. Or you can put it into the demon of anxiety. Or you can put it into the... There is an endless list of demons you could throw this into. But where do you read that? Is there anywhere in Scripture where you find something like this? And the answer is you don't find it. There is no instruction. There is no guidance for this whatsoever. It is all based upon experience. I'm not saying Satan is not real and that we are not in warfare and that he does not fight and that he does not oppress. That is a word that we read and that he will harass. We, we, we see that happening. That all can happen. But that a believer would lose control of their life to a demon and would have to have somebody intervene in their life to exercise that demon and liberate them for them to walk a life of sanctification. It's just flat not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. I, and I know that many of you come from places where you've heard this, you've seen this, and all I would say to you is, be, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. I'm not mad. I'm just passionate about this, and you'll see why in just a moment. I'm just saying, you go do your homework. You go study your, the Bible, 
and read it and find where this is justified and this becomes a means for an, an example for doing ministry. This is what the Bible does teach. Well, I've already made the first point. It's completely silent. Number two, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, we are taught that where Christ is, that Christ brings what? Liberty. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. We are taught that light and darkness cannot dwell together. Satan and Jesus cannot dwell together. 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 16. We are told to walk in the Spirit and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Every one of those demons, you can put under the category of the lust of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. James chapter 4 verse 7, we are told to resist the devil and what? He will flee. We're not told to exercise the devil. We're told to resist the devil. James chapter 4 verse 7. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, we're told not to give a foothold or to give place to Satan in our life. So the believer is responsible for walking in the Spirit or not walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit or not walking in the flesh. You are responsible. I am responsible. If there is a consistent form of disobedience and a control, controlling sin in my life, it is because I have given the enemy a foothold in my life. But I must repent and I must resist and I must walk in the Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches us to do when that kind of influence comes over us. That kind of control. Read Romans chapter 6. Read it over and over again. So, no. A Christian cannot be inhabited Indwelt or demonized or demon-possessed. If a person has a demon in them, that demon needs to come out. No doubt about it. But they're not saved. They're not saved. So, well, what about what happened? I, I don't know what, what about happened. If you had a manifestation of a demon come out and your life was completely changed and you were bound up before, I would say you weren't saved. <laughs> so praise the Lord. You're saved. That's a great thing. And I can rejoice over that and celebrate that work in your life. But there is no evidence for this. And so I just think that it, this, this teaching, it, it questions the sufficiency of our salvation. It questions the Spirit's ability to sanctify us. And it questions the Father's character that he would allow a demon to come into me or to in you. And so I think there are some heavy theological reasons why we reject that teaching. So I know you didn't see that one coming, but I just felt like on this topic, this would be a good time to drop that in. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are sending us out just like you sent these disciples out to go and help a, a person bound and held by Satan. Thank you, Lord, that you sent somebody to set us free and to liberate us. And Lord, we believe in your power, and we believe that your power is needed and it needs to be seen in the world today. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would 
give us faith and trust. And even we, when we don't know why, and when we didn't see it coming, and it came out of nowhere, that our faith would be strong, knowing that you're the one that you've counted our sorrows, you've collected our tears, and they're all recorded in a book. Lord, you care about us. Forgive us for ever questioning whether you care about us. The cross should have once and for all answered that question. So, Lord, we trust you to see us through the stormy seas of life. And, Lord, we thank you that you have set us free, that you have liberated us. And, um, Lord, we pray that you would send us. You would send us out to those that need to experience that same freedom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.